When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome, everybody, to the Michael Brooks Show. We're broadcasting live from our quarantine zones with super producer Matt Luck. Hello, folks. Hey, how you doing, Matt? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Long day, but uh, I have a lot of energy for some reason today, which has yeah, not, not been my story this whole pandemic, so we'll <laughs> see how that lasts tonight. Well, the sun is still coming out. Uh, high energy show. With the always high energy theoretician and economist David Griscom. How's it going, man? Going pretty well. Going pretty well. On this week's program, very excited. I'm having my buddies, Wazni Lombre, Big Waz, and Nando Vila. We do a show called Woke Bros together. And the Woke Bros are here on TMBS. We're talking more about this. Attempted coup in Venezuela, what that says about the Roman decay of the American empire, more last dance reactions, oligarchs and sports teams, oligarchs and everything. We're talking about that. Plus, we will all react and enjoy the one moment. When Stacey Abrams realized she's not going to be Joe Biden's vice president. It's very funny. It's very, very funny. All that plus a mini illicit history of permanent normalized trade relations with China. The vote in 2000 that paved the way for China's membership in the World Trade Organization and how the politics and the economics of that moment set the stage for the world we're in today. We've got a gem with David Griscom, of course, in the post game. Daniel Bessner joins us for a new post game segment we're doing with him. We're switching up the post games. Don't worry, Ben Burgess will be back next week. But on this one, we're talking with Daniel Bessner about the CIA in a new reading group segment. Joshua Kahn will be here, and then he will also switch out next week for a, a music history and more. We're talking about Doctors Without Borders deploying to the Navajo Nation. And let's not forget Mike Flynn's role with Turkey amidst all the drama. Donald Trump and Corona 
something we actually need to analyze. Bolivia coup government causing a catastrophe with Corona and subverting, of course, a democratic process. It's a coup government. Liz Plank, not good take on history. And Nancy Pelosi lands one. She may be absolutely screwing over the country with the Republican leadership, but she finally found a way to burn Trump. And we always give credit where credit is due. So jam-packed show as always. We appreciate everybody being here. We hope you all are staying safe, staying strong, and you and your loved ones are well. As always, sending out well wishes um, and and uh, friendship to all. But first, we got to start by talking about surveillance, authoritarianism, journalism, privacy, and the future of political movements globally. And I'm talking about specifically, can we chart a third way with surveillance between a platform capitalism that comes from Silicon Valley, whose deep roots in military research, in the military and deep nexus with the military industrial complex forms how these companies and how this industry operates today with regards to our privacy, with regards to our national security policies, and with regards to other major areas of life. And a Chinese system that is pioneering new deployments and new ways of surveilling controlling, and monitoring. It's very important, and we've been spending a lot of time on this show, pushing back against the delusions, the xenophobia, the ridiculousness of those fear-mongering and attempting to wage a new Cold War with China. We need to understand how China thinks, how China perceives the world, and what a new multipolar world looks like. This is incredibly important, and we need some level of objectivity when we talk about any country and any place on the planet. Some part of politics does reside in the realm of of is versus ought, is. This is just how it is. This is what a place is doing. This is how it's operating. And when we see positives, as with some aspects of Belt and Road and some other aspects of Chinese policy, we will accentuate them. Uh, But we also have to be real. The policies with regard to Tibet, Xinjiang, And the Uyghurs, these are not only in the sort of parlance, I wish we could frankly come up with a better one, but these absolutely are places of serious human rights violations. These are also systems uh, that pioneer different versions of surveillance and monitoring. And I want to remind you of one of Slavo Žižek's very interesting insights about this that he raised on this show several months ago. What we've been talking about the last several months is the aggression emanating from the United States towards China, from the military industrial complex, the Bannon, and all sorts of other nefarious interests. Zizek, though, also pointed out that in other respects, we do have a globally linked and globally integrated system where elites learn from each other. They do meet at platforms and places like Davos. They share information. They share governing technologies. And the trajectories of a increasingly repressive Silicon Valley and highly intensive monitoring in the United States, as well as some of the models coming out of China, these can be synthesized and merged and integrated for 
techno corporate political and governmental projects that in the main are not going to serve the common interest of anybody. So we have to understand how there are similar and integrated trajectories. And if there's pathways beyond it in this regard, and specifically with the internet and surveillance. And of course, these trends are accelerating under Corona. The United States government has held talks between the FBI and Google and other firms to explore the option of using their tech to gather geolocation and data from people. Bill Barr uh, has recently, uh, with the assistance, able assistance of Mitch McConnell and 10 Democratic votes in the Senate, now is able to, without a warrant, look at anybody's uh, internet browser history. The Patriot Act and a permanent nexus between private security firms and the agencies that compose the national security state, including the CIA, then NSA, and others, have been steadily eroding our civil liberties for decades. And this process has only accelerated under Trump. In China, a color-coded system on smartphones is used to determine who is able to enter different zones as the quarantine has been lifted, of course, This makes some serious and obvious immediate medical sense. Of course, China's had success in certain areas uh, in terms of containing corona, but obviously this is going to be used for a broader project in an already repressive state apparatus. People are given a color code, green, likely clear, yellow at risk of carrying, or red carrying corona. This has been used to gain access to a variety of areas of additional areas that people can be tracked in their day-to-day lives. In some ways, we can see that these systems parallel and reinforce each other. And it's very, again, very important to understand how China is generating alternatives and multipolarity in the world. But we also need to be asking ourselves very clearly, where do we want to head? And I would suggest that while we can learn from both of these systems and take advantage uh, of tensions in the global system, we don't either want platform uh, Silicon Valley capitalism or Chinese surveillance as a global model. Now, where is a third way? In 2018, the Financial Times reported that Emmanuel Macron was attempting to forge a European alternative. And indeed, there's no doubt that the Europeans, in contrast to, in particular, the United States, have absolutely pushed forward with consumer protection against the tech monopolies like Google. They've also done more provisions for technological access and treating Internet access as a commons and have raised concerns about privacy and openness in the main. This is important. However, the dynamic with Europe is the same in tech as it is with other key areas in terms of posing an alternative to the United States. Yes, Europe has serious achievements in things like social democracy, but it is still part of the Western security architecture. It is still part of NATO, and it is still, in the end of the day, deeply integrated with the United States. Looking at the Anglo system of surveillance alone, the five eyes, which include the UK, New Zealand, and Australia, the United States, um, and one other that I'm actually forgetting right now that, that share and coordinate intelligence closely together. So Europe can come forward with important policies, uh, but it is very unlikely to forge a different path for the Internet. There's also, of course, the alternative history of the Internet itself, that even as the Internet was created, 
by military and governmental research. Yasha Levine documents this incredibly well in his book and has deep relationships with the national security state. There was also the push for the free software, for Linux, for open platforms, for using the internet as a tool of openness and information sharing. One of the, one of the things that President Lula's government did in Brazil was push over government operations to open source software and projects like the Free Software Foundation and Richard Stallman and others have done pioneering work in this regard. We don't know the answers, but we do know that a technology that dictates more and more of our lives is being governed in a trajectory by the parasitic monopolies of Silicon Valley and the aggressive surveillance of the Chinese state in directions that will not bode well for not only traditional conceptions of openness, but also obviously privacy and the capacity to do politics in the 21st century. We need to organize outside of these models and forge an actual third way that can learn from the successes of both while creating something new and genuinely democratic. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think that's a hundred percent true. And I think we really need to be hitting this as, as much as possible too, because there's such a bad uh, narrative that you get sometimes from like liberal media. I remember like the whole like Trevor Noah joke, for example, about privacy was like, all these old senators don't understand privacy and that's why they're voting in the way that they do. Right. It's like, no, they understand that there's a very powerful um, lobby and industry right there that they can one use to their advantage. Like they are with the surveillance state and to get, you know, financial advantages from supporting and protecting uh, from common sense regulations. Uh, so, you know, we def- we like desperately need to get uh, very real about what we're up against, too. It's not just like, oh, there's this older generation of boomers that just doesn't understand technology. And that's why they've let it get so bad and understand that, no, it's actually like a very powerful arm of, of capitalism. And, uh, you know, data capitalism is going to be one of the most crucial uh, develop is one of the most crucial developments of the past few decades. Yeah, David, could you go to the, uh, I put in the outline. I can't share screen, yeah. um, because I'm posting, but it reminds me of a, a article by Evgeny Morozov in The Baffler, uh, yeah. called The Meme Hustler. And it's about how basically we, Michael mentioned open software, which is like, it's a, it's a slip because like free software has been erased from history basically That's because right. of corporate interests, right? You and, know, mea culpa, because I should not, those are very important differences right there. And even as a non-tech expert like myself, I actually, those are, those are really big differences. But free software free doesn't feel, it's not even part of the lexicon anymore because right. and, like it was right. like, this was also all code should have been open and, you know, re, and I'm probably getting a lot of things wrong. So I don't want to get too technical about it, but I'll, I'll, it should be, you know, cut and paste. Every line of code should be open to everyone and usable by everyone. Open software meant licenses, but like we have it open. So basically corporations can come in and bootstrap, um, projects made by, you know, people that they're not really paying, uh, you know, payroll, um, to. Or, right. And right. also, yeah. And the difference between like, yeah, like an open platform that everybody can use versus is the actual architecture open for people to refine and improve the technology in an open and democratic way. I mean, these things have been completely erased from the history. There's no doubt about it. And also, yeah, it's especially again with regard to the fear mongering with China, of course, Chinese companies are correct, are connected deeply with Chinese national security policy. 
Guess where else that's true? In the United States. And, you know, this is nothing. I mean, all one need do is go back to 2012 and just, again, read the Snowden revelations. And, of course, the scale of NSA surveillance and how easy the FISA courts were. And that process, again, is ongoing. And some of the new things that have come through in the last couple of weeks with the Trump administration should terrify you. But even, um, you know, in addition to that, you have to look at that and say, why was the NSA aggressively spying on Petrobras as an example? And how does that as part of the same program have potential overlaps with phone companies giving away people da- you know, people's data? What is the role of private security contractors, which are subcontracted out across all of these areas, you know, outsourcing privatization and public private partnerships, uh, you know, wasn't just for, uh, the parts of the economy that these people took less seriously. It was an ideology that goes to the heart of the most sensitive areas of government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So we'll do. And I think, I think I'm really glad you brought up, I hope we can have Evgeny Morozov on, on some point. I'm actually, he's, he's a good, big fan of Evgeny Morozov. He's definitely somebody, everybody should read his, myth busting about Silicon Valley and techno optimism. And he's, he's a great thinker. Yeah. He's really good. He's a really, really good. I mean, especially when he, this stuff has gotten more fashionable, but when he was putting this stuff out in 2012, 2014, even the delusion and optimism about Silicon Valley and the arrogance, I mean, the idea of, Oh, you know, the Egyptians didn't have an uprising that involved students and labor and religious people and this dynamical. No, no, no. They had Facebook. Yeah, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, they had a Twitter. Done. Mm-hmm. That was how the Western press covered 2011. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. It's actually amazing to, to think <laughs> how off base that it was. I know. I know. Good thing we're totally um, on base now. No, yeah, no, no. We've, <laughs> yeah, no, we really, we're really, really, really in good shape now. All right. So let's talk about why people should become patrons. Uh, and then we will get to the woke bros. Um, let's start actually with illicit histories. Um, cause these are really fun. And these are some, these are the types of projects that we've been able to expand out as the show has grown. Um, and as I keep saying, I mean, we're well in development of a book that we're going to self-publish. I'm really excited about. In another couple of weeks at tmbs.fm, we're going to have a whole new store ready. So more shirts, more hoodies, you'll get another chance, but also uh, stuff like pins and stickers and a whole bunch of other kind of items like that. These illicit history documentaries, the latest of which is on Thomas Sankara with uh, history and narration by the great Milton Alamadi. It's still behind the paywall. And if you have the capacity at $21 or above, you can become an illicit history doc producer. You, we give, you know, we've taken people's suggestions on subjects they want. They get the documentaries first and then we unlock all of them into a playlist on YouTube, which you should definitely watch um, because this content's really great. Uh, we're going to just play a minute of the history of the implosion of neoliberalism that we did with Mark Blythe, which you can watch now. This is on our illicit history playlist on YouTube. So watch it if you haven't yet. We'll play about a minute or so of it and then talk more. It's over. The grim certitude of the contest with communism has been replaced 
by the exuberant uncertainty of international economic competition. And the great question of this day is how to ensure security for our people at a time when change is the only constant. Make no mistake, the global economy, with all of its promise and perils, is now the central fact of life for hardworking Americans. It has enriched the lives of millions of Americans, but for too many, those same winds of change have worn away at the basis of their security. For two decades, most people have worked harder for less. Seemingly secure jobs have been lost. And while America, once again, is the most productive nation on Earth, this productivity itself holds the seeds of further insecurity. After all, productivity means the same people can produce more, or very often that fewer people can produce more. This is the world we face. We cannot stop global change. We cannot repeal the international economic competition that is more. everywhere. We can only harness the energy to our benefit. Now we must recognize that the only way for a wealthy nation yeah, to grow richer bill. is to export, to simply find new This has been 30 years in the making. This has been a long time coming and it ain't going anywhere soon. Reducing the deficit will require difficult and unpleasant decisions. We must face a time of national austerity. Hard choices are necessary. Now, why is inflation a crisis? You're an investor. You've got an environment of inflation. You expect to make 5% real in your investment. Infl inflation goes up to 7%. You might as well take your money around the back of the house and burn it. And that was basically what was happening in the 1970s. Also, by the 1970s, labor's share of national income had never been higher. And it was effectively costless to move from job to job, which meant that capital lost the ability to discipline labor. Hence why labor strikes were up and all the rest of it right across the world. Parties of the left still All right, so this is, uh, I'm really, really proud of these and everything from Brazil to Jamaica to the implosion of neoliberalism. We're giving you these deep historical dives. Now, as an $8 a month patron, as a Brooksy, you get these Sunday episodes, which are the audio version of that, except much longer. Um, and again, there's a catalog now of hundreds and hundreds of deep dives on Turkey, on Iran, on the history of different economic moments, on thinkers, including the great CLR James. And we've got a couple in the works. We're going to be working on one that will be coming out uh, soon with Mark Ames on Russia in the 1990s and how it relates to the crisis America's in today. Uh, another on the history, how the 1980s relationship between the Saudis, the U.S. intelligence services, and the war in Afghanistan helped create not only the crisis Pakistan is in today, but the world we're in today. We're working on one on the Obama administration, the 2008 recession. These histories are in-depth. They're usually conversations with an expert that include um, – audio uh, archival uh, clips. Um, and they're trying to kind of set either a way of understanding things that are important to this show, like the politics of the Caribbean or the Middle East or great liberation leaders in Africa or, um, you know, underground histories of politics, in the United States, like we did an in-depth one on the history of the P original PR campaigns against Medicare for all. Uh, and the new ones we're working on now, even more so, um, they all share the theme of why 
What are the key moments from the economy to globalization to the 1980s that have got us where we are today? So um, I love it. You know, if David and Matt have anything to add, but I'll just say, I mean, and always we give folks deals if they need deals and uh, we, we need to, um, you know, we're again, we're doing fine, uh, but we need to keep powering ahead and keep growing. So if you have the capacity, go for it. Patreon.com slash TMBS. You will get very good, very good work. We're really proud of it. I just wanted to add uh, one reason. If you're on the fence about supporting us on, uh, you know, Patreon one, you're going to get your money's worth. I don't think anybody's putting out as much content as we are. Um, you know, it, it's pretty exceptional, but there's the second level point too, which is that there are a lot of really important left ideas and left thinkers out there. And what we've really needed for a long time is a, a platform and a, a space that we can get those ideas out there into the public. And a lot of the kind of legacy media, um, it doesn't, it's not as effective at getting those ideas out, out there. And YouTube is great because we're able to reach so many people, but the way that YouTube works as well, it's not going to, you know, su- want to support like long conversations on Lacan or t- deep dives into right. neoliberalism, right? So having this Patreon support really allows us to be independent and to get the ideas that are very important for the left to continue to grow out there. Um, so it's, you know, it's a good, it's a great deal for what you're getting. And it's also an important thing too, to continue and build, um, our left understanding and our left politics going forward. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a reason people like Zizek keep coming back and Adolf Reed gives us an hour of his time. And I think of I what politicized what me, um, like 10 or so years ago, like in terms of actual leftism was going online and watching long conversations, basically like whether it's YouTube or C-SPAN mm-hmm. and like the, our conversations, I mean, if I could have, if I could have us 12 years ago, I mean, I would have loved it basically, which yeah. is nice to be in a position to be making that sort of content. So yeah, I also want to, uh, I, we don't normally read out super chats on the, uh, first on the show like this, but, uh, P studio says something. Funnily enough, I'm reading a history of the C language Unix. This foundational tech is free as in freedom because antitrust action against Ma Bell barred them from entering the software space. Interesting. So, huh. yeah, we got it. And this is actually, we're already cultivating another illicit history here. You can go right back, which we're going to work on. You can go back to the beginning. We did a two-parter on the relationship between fascism and Silicon Valley with Corey Pine. Uh, and, and even the way the post games, which we have a lot of fun in, and that's definitely a great way for people to engage. And we take questions from patrons and everything else. Um, and then the main show, which, you know, is, is a hell of an effort inside itself. And I think actually weaves a lot of these things together. So we're proud of it and we appreciate everybody. A lot of people have come on board and, uh, keep going. Thanks everybody. Uh, patreon.com slash TMBS. We're going to take a brief break and come back. So the woke bros can assemble.
Welcome back, Michael Brooks Show. And if you're listening to this, you might be listening to this on the Bomb feed, which you should subscribe to on iTunes. Uh, this is Woke Bros, which is a weekly show that I do with my great and dear friends, Wazni Lombre, Big Waz, who you're very familiar with, Nando Vila, who you're also you should be familiar with as well. I do the show with these two gentlemen, and we decided this week we would assemble as one on TMBS. I'm actually shocked we haven't done this before. How are you guys doing? Doing great, man. This is exciting to be amazing. on the big uh, on the big show. Yeah, you guys got called up to, uh, to varsity. Like it's like when you got called up to varsity, you know, when the guy got injured and you're like the best player on JV, but you know, you get called up to varsity. Or like Mike, who left basketball, played double A baseball, and what is inevitably headed to the major leagues, or at least that's what the documentary would have us all believe that he was destined for stardom in baseball if the lockout didn't happen. <laughs> Let's just get to, uh, you know, I was going to wait, but fine. Let's just talk about it. We've already talked about it. The Last Dance is incredible. Yeah. I agree. Nuts how good that is. Well, it's, you know what? It, go ahead, was No, no, you go ahead. Well, no, it's nostalgia porn, right? And Definitely. it plays on somebody like me who in 1998 was 11 years old and still was, you know, I wasn't jaded. And so I still believed in things like superheroes and perfect people. And Michael Jordan was all of that, right? Like you lit like this want to be like Mike. It sounds cliche and corny now, but back then, no, literally uh, like the idea that I would smoke or drink or do drugs or do any of that stuff like while being a hooper I was like I can't smoke weed Michael Jordan doesn't do that you know, like literally like of course your parents and all of these people always tell you do this do that no like for me it was like nah Mike did this this that and the third to become a great hooper that's how you do it right like you saw Mike as a deity and for me to like sort of transport myself back in time into a time when I was just a young, bushy-tailed, 11-year-old, just obsessed with the NBA. For that alone, I'm thankful. Yeah, someone once told me that nostalgia is the most powerful force in the universe after compound interest. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, this was like, yeah, like a nostalgia shot a heroin into your veins, you know, like it was, it was amazing. And it was, it also, it, the whole time, I, the, the thing that I couldn't stop thinking about while watching it was <laughs> how the nineties were such a time where there was much more of a monoculture, you know, like the internet really shattered kind of the idea of a monoculture. Yeah. And, but this, event the last dance as a media event in the middle of the pandemic has felt in a way like one of those rare unifying things like everyone has watched it like everyone has watched it it dominates the conversation for weeks uh you know like it's the it it kind of brings back that phenomenon of the water cooler like you know like we're uh, like you know the next day at work everyone is talking about whatever happened the previous night on television right um which has and a positive monoculture too you know yeah like in terms of that it's exciting and it's great to watch and it's making yeah. people get you know re-engage with a lot of different things but you know what i actually remembered because i obviously i watched the bulls when i was a kid too we're all about the same age and I played basketball and I was, you know, I was, I was pretty good. And, uh, I remember, and, you know, I don't think that was like my main, like I probably had more like tennis fantasies or whatever, but I, you know, anytime during the NBA or college season, I had, you know, I had the fantasy 
of whatever sport was on at the time, whether it was baseball or basketball or whatever. And, um, and I think even at that age, you already, you know, you're like, yeah, that's like, I'm not going to be Michael Jordan. Right. I'm not a crazy child, but I remembered and I got this real wave of nostalgia because even though I follow Steve Kerr watching him coach the Warriors, I remembered, I swear, and it really hit me Sunday night with the latest one. I was like, Steve Kerr was who I was watching because I was like, there's my plausible path. Yeah, he's the white guy. <laughs> I was like, I can be that dude. He's lanky. He's got a good jump shot. <laughs> also, man, and, and that's the thing about the doc too is that, you know. But that's how powerful it is though that anybody can find, even with I love that Steve Kerr. I love that Steve Kerr admitted that his idol was John Paxson. <laughs> The other oh, white guy. Mean, that was like an real. incredible moment. Steve <laughs> Kerr tells the story, and I think it involves it. It in, not involves it informs his coaching style. Like he talks yeah. about what it's like to be a role player. He talks about like not thinking he was ever going to the NBA, literally until he got there, and that informs sort of his worldview. But like he's always been kind of realistic about the kind of player that he was or the kind of player that he could be like, he was like, I'm not going to even be a John Stockton. Not to say even like that, because John Stockton's clearly one of the greatest players of all time and all of this stuff. But Steve Kerr's self-awareness shown through. And the story that they told about his dad um, out in Lebanon, basically, you know, died for this shit, this American shit, you know, yeah. like literally died for it. Um, and um, they didn't talk about it in the documentary either, but his grandfather did missionary work in the Middle East as well, right. like saved a bunch of Armenians during the genocide and all of that. Like Steve Kerr comes from a, like a crazy family, right? And you don't think about him as such. You think about him as this Southern California surfer dude. And he's got so much depth and all of that. It's, it, I don't know. I just loved seeing all of this stuff. And I love that footage. Did. That can I just say that footage of Michael, who and as Steve Kerr said, he's like Michael's aware of the cameras at all times. He's constantly so he's there, you know, at the timeout. Yeah, that was a cup moment. in his mouth, and he I love. He's just like he's like got the cup in his mouth. He's like he's like. I'm gonna find you, Steve. Like, and Steve Kerr's like, "Oh, we're ready!" Yeah. Oh, we're ready. Oh, <laughs> Just like an eager, yeah. You know, like that's like a that's like a that common thing these so days, like earnest. covering your mouth. You know, yeah. like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You give me the call. <laughs> Put me in, coach. <laughs> oh no, it's, it's deeper than that. It's like, wait a second, like, my 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 trust me to, 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 for the for the for the jumper. The <laughs> other thing that I noticed in the last two episodes, it like really hit home because this was like a thing that used to get talked about a lot was the, uh, you know, that, you know, basketball was like a game for black people, but the, everyone in the crowd was white. And oh, like the, the footage Christ. of the crowd in Indiana and in Ooh. Utah, Ooh. every single person is white. Going, <laughs> you motherfuckers! <laughs> Fuck you! <laughs> you know, in, in a lot of ways, man, in this doc, because of the length of it, the, because of the way so many people were attracted to it in culture, um, gets compared to the OJ doc. And obviously this yeah. is much different, right? Like OJ yeah. didn't executive produce the OJ doc. You understand? So OJ no, he's delusional the- enough. Actually, at the end of watching that doc, I'm like, OJ would produce that same doc. Yeah. <laughs> or, he, or he would produce now let's find the real killers doc. Yeah, you know what I'm like, saying like, then now you've been educated on racism let's find out who really did it but I just think it's cool that 
this, like this doc, even though it's not as explicitly political, racial as um the OJ doc was, which is like, you know, <laughs> the the premise is like if you dive headverse in, into Uncle Tomery, you might become a mass murderer. <laughs> right? Like that's literally the premise. That's the best doc. description of that documentary. <laughs> I've ever heard. That's the log line. <laughs> like, the best log bro, line I've ever heard. If you embrace Uncle Tomery, like you might become a killer. Like straight up and down. But like that's what I think is cool about that MJ thing is that race and American culture and politics is sort of the subtext of all of it, right? Like, you're, right. you guys are like, they're not talking about the crowd in Indiana, but basketball is such like, you it's can so see it. visceral. It's like, God damn, this is crazy. You know, so like, I was struck by that Indiana shit and Mike's kids finally coming on the dock yeah. to say that their mom told them, you're not going to Utah. <laughs> Right. Y'all black asses ain't yeah. going to Utah. No. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then Obama at the end comes out and says, like, well, let me be clear. Um, um, MJ made it okay to be black uh, around the world as an American. And uh, that's his legacy. You know? But I mean, well, Obama, you know, the thing that struck me is that if you go back to that 2008 Obama campaign as an advertising project, I mean, they actually mm-hmm. got um, – one of the Bulls' main announcers, I think, for either Chicago radio or in stadium, but like a local institution, uh, the same guy who'd bring the Bulls out, they got that to, they got him to cut a similar version for Obama. They used the Bulls' entrance music for Obama. And again, I think, yeah, and, and I, you know, I, I actually think that model of, because it is a black man, it is a direct confrontation just because of literally what it is against a certain type of racism and a certain type of exclusion and a redefining of what quote unquote mainstream is. But I think, you know, Obama flows from Jordan in the sense what that is, no it's question. the visual is it no like question. it. There isn't like, you know, it's just like, right. And, you know, here I am. And, you know, right down to in the 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 advertising is, yeah. The first episode that Barry shows up and he's like, yo, man, like you could be the shit as long as you don't rock the boat. Like he literally gives the game away. Like he says the quiet part loud. Like, you know, when we all remember his campaign in 07 and, and 2008, where he literally would not acknowledge that he was black. He would, you know, use black church like sort of cadences. He'd talk about liking Jay-Z. He would tiptoe tap dance around the subject because he knew. He knew. And I think that was so cool, Mike, that you mentioned that in the doc, that they draw the direct line from Michael Jordan to Barack Obama. And, of course, like, uh, and, you know, a lot of Mike's contributions – uh, culturally, and even if you want to call it politically, is that he is the first one. He is the one that you plastered on Wheaties and Gatorade and Hanes commercials. Like, he's the first black athlete that became just a global... What about those Nike man? numbers? I mean, it's... It, That's this. insane. They anticipate, what was, I don't even remember. It was some type of like, hey, if we get $2 million of revenue, right? Oh, okay, here's sixty. Right. In one year. <laughs> yeah. Before he's even won a championship. Dude, and you think, and of course, Nike is one of those things. Like, somebody, something for me, 
why this shit resonates on so many levels. I remember, you know, having a conversation with a, a, a black woman friend of mine and she was explaining to me why it's like, you know, the beauty standards is all fucked up and like they tell us our hair doesn't look good. They tell us our skin tone and this and blah. And I just remember thinking to myself, shit, man, I always had Mike. Like I'd never, yeah. these things never entered into my own psyche. Like the idea that you couldn't be cool or desirable or beautiful, like it never crossed my mind because Michael Jordan was everybody's idol. Like these are the things that he actually affected. And you know, you think about to this day, my own obsession still with Nike and sneakers is it's all Mike. It's, it's, it's incredible, man. You know, like everyone is talking about, well, I mean, cause I think like, um, We've talked about it before, but this idea that Michael Jordan is like this, like kind of insane, ruthless psychopath type of guy who, like, you know, punched Steve Kerr in the face and uh, he felt you know, real bad about it, bullied, bullied his teammates, and um, but you know, the the feeling that I was getting watching this was that you know, Mike, who himself doesn't seem like too capable of like personal joy, to be honest, like it just doesn't seem like he, like it seemed like winning was like a relief in a way. It wasn't like, um, it was this thing that consumed him, but in in a way it, it made me think like, you know, he had to like sacrifice, like, it's like he had to sacrifice himself for us. Like, would we like, think about the, think about the kind of the, the amount of entertainment and joy he brought to millions of other people, um, by seeing someone so great operating at such a high level for such a long time, so consistently, um, that, that's some, it's almost like a, a sacrifice to the world that he gave us, you know, that he gave, he, he sacrificed his own joy, his own kind of, personal thing for no, us no, in he, a way I, I mean obviously I, obviously he's rich as hell and I, he he's said fine, that but like though. yeah he said I that agree. he's like I, I tried to be a perfect person I probably wouldn't have did it that way if I could go back to it like he even has his own regrets about how he handled his sort of public persona he's like bro like trying to be perfect is crazy yo like that shit where is on you? Sorry, Mike, I cut you off, but he said No, no, it good, no, it's perfect. I just, no, I was going to say something frivolous and then, but I'll make a serious point first, which is that I, that's also to me why we already talked about this and some people didn't like it, but whatever. And Waz, you wrote a really good piece about this in The Athletic Thank too, you. about like Michael Jordan's obligations to be political or not. And you and David Aldridge talked about it on Hoops Adjacent. But I think um, to me, it was, it, it's kind of the same principle. I mean, obviously it, just that, there's a million criticisms you could, you, you know, okay. Like Nike is the fuel of this incredible cultural breakthrough in the United States. And it's built on one of the most ruthless, abusive global supply chains. Dude, uh, they, the they 19 set the standard, the for that standard thing. for that, <laughs> for the nineties yeah, yeah, and global capitalism. And even the way like recognition and identitarian politics split from broader struggles, whether it be civil rights or economic justice, that all of that is there, but that's not a personal responsibility of one man <laughs> whose <laughs> primary contribution to the culture is like you guys just said, just producing, like producing such joy that he's giving us joy 20 years later in the middle of a pandemic. The, the frivolous thing I want to say though, and I, I'm, I want your takes on this though. He takes everything personal yeah. And it is not just, you know, he gets pissed at his teammates. Everything is a problem. Yeah. And then it's hysterical because he's like, 
he's super easy on Dennis Rodman. He's just like, yeah, I guess he just wanted well, to get paid to go wrestle. Like, I, I love I, that everything swear. is a problem except for Dennis. He no, just, but I, those yeah, things where <laughs> those things fit, those things fit for me perfectly where it's like Jordan, Jordan would con, had to understand what you were fully. And then if he did and you trusted and he trusted you on that front, I don't think he cared about like the sort of showy displays of effort so much no. as just him the knowing in some way big. The, yeah. And like, I've seen that before with like other geniuses in sport, you know, like Maradona was the same way, you know, like he was the same way that he, he demanded a lot of you, but, but he didn't demand more than what you were capable of giving. If that makes sense. He, it was like, right. and it was like, as long as you were doing the th- as long as he understood what you could contribute and you could, and he could rely on that in those moments, then he was fine with everything else. You know what I mean? It's like they, they understand the sport at such a high level. Like Jordan, Jordan was probably working out computations in his head that like for us are in, we're just incapable. Like he's like Luke Longley is like three inches to the left and you know, Steve Kerr is out on the wing and Rodman's right here. Like, and he can like in his mind, he can see all the permutations of that. And as long as you don't fuck up that permutation, he's fine with, with all your other bullshit. Yeah. And, and you see it throughout the documentary, like, um, and you know, this, the stuff about Jordan and his teammates has been part of NBA and Jordan folklore for so long. Like this stuff is not new to anybody who's really followed him. The stuff about punching Steve Kerr in the face, um, which they both acknowledge Mike sort of liked him more afterwards that Steve Kerr stood up to him and they had the fight and they, it became, all right, this dude's not a punk. I actually messed with him. Um, Bill Cartwright, they tell this famous story of Bill Cartwright when he first gets traded over there for Charles Oakley and he sees Mike doing all the crazy shit. And Bill says, you try that with me, I'm going to punch you in your face. And it never happens. You know what I'm saying? Like, you well, know, Bill Cartwright's like, bigger than right? Steve yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are these examples of this understanding. But, Mike, you touched on something that I wanted to talk to you guys about, and that's – and I think it, it speaks to something deeper within the public. Um, my man Pablo Torre did, uh, I think he was doing the sports reporters in it on his parting shot. He talked about how people are making a take of Mike's into a feature. Like this idea that like you can't possibly call your teammates bitches and hoes and not win six championships and six tries. And Pablo's just like, nah, like I think you can win six championships and six tries and not call your teammates bitches and hoes, right? And whatever. Like that didn't seem that crazy to me. But like on and I have retweeted it online and online, like all you see is people lining up to defend Mike's right to belittle his his teammates, his coworkers, which I think is just, I think it just speaks to like a, just a certain bootlicker mentality that exists in America. It's like, yeah, it's so not Mike is the king, whatever he does works. It's a bootlicker thing, but it's also that people take, and, and I, what I got from the documentary and now also I keep mentioning it, I'm rereading Sacred Hoops. I'm almost done with it. That, and obviously these are both like, they're not going to trash Mike. So that goes without of saying course. these are, these are frames, but one that his relationship with his teammates to me is more complicated than was presented. So it wasn't like, Oh no, he was actually a really nice guy, but also no, he wasn't just an asshole. And actually even the reasons he was an asshole changed from the beginning of his career of like, all right, guys, watch this to later in his career kind of being like, come on, like I need you, which is interesting. 
but to what you're saying was, and I just think there is a combination of, of, of hero worship in, in an embarrassing sense. And also that, and you see this with a million business idiots that it's Steve Jobs and Michael Jordan are these huge permission givers for being an asshole. And it's yeah. like, it really, I could guarantee you that you don't have Mike's capacity. And as you said, you know, there's, you know, LeBron's pretty nice guy. Tim Duncan, by all accounts, is an incredibly nice guy. Every one of his teammates love him. Like, it's silly. And it, yeah. I think it's just a you lot of permission has, look. Um, has um, big respect and universal admiration from his teammates? Tom Brady. People yeah. be shocked by that, but his teammates, all of his teammates, speak glowingly of that dude. Like straight up, everybody's like he's the best teammate ever. One of one of the things that I, I loved watching about the doc and is that's like, a white guy. Yeah, that is a white guy. <laughs> uh, Trump supporter, uh, and, that's and, a, uh, and that's a Yakubian. No, yeah. he got he got. I think his wife gave him a hard time about that. I think. Yeah. I think. Giselle, yeah, he's over it. He, I think he, she pushed Tom, him back on that. Yo, he Tom Brady signed yeah. that petition. Um, to reinvestigate that case down in Georgia. He was one of the people, um, the NFL's like that committee that I forget what it's called, but the committee that the NFL players, um, formed in conjunction with the league coming out of the Kaepernick shit. Like they were spearheading the, um, the charge to reinvestigate those cops. You mean the, the murder in, uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Tom Brady put his name on that shit, which is fucking. Well, you know, Trump, Trump's got his, Trump has his like, handful of woke white guys like Tom Brady and Rob Blagojevich. Like yeah. <laughs> Blagojevich got out of prison. He was just like, Al Trump's the fucking greatest. And I learned about racism in there and I'm going to fucking end Like that. American history. Acts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, Waz, one thing that I noticed was like one of the games in the final, I don't remember if it was one of the games in the finals or one of the games against uh, Indiana that went to overtime. And the final score was like 82 to 79 after an overtime. It just made me realize like just like the different NBA era uh, yeah. of like, you know, how low scoring it was back then. You know, like if Jordan was like putting up 40 points in like an 80 point game. Yeah, um, it's, it's almost like, like a different it's, – it's almost like you're watching something different. The, the the amount of threes that these guys refuse to take. Or even somebody like a Dennis Rodman who it, in today's game would literally – could only play center. Um, he's their power forward. Like Ron Harper's not shooting at all. And like, it's just a different game. The rules, like they had, they still had the illegal defense rule in where you couldn't play zone like you can in today's game. It's just different, man. Yeah. Like the stuff that we were nostalgic for is games that ended 76 to 72. I know. It's crazy. That's halftime scores nowadays. Like yeah. literally. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Anzo, can you yep. actually wait? I was going to say, let's get, I want to get to a few other things, but I uh, just, We've talked about this before, actually, in two different ways. Nando, you and I have talked about uh, the the role of like golf money and, oh, yeah. and Russian and all ol- just oligarch money and the future of sports. And was from day one, you have been not only have you connected the just like embarrassing racism of some fans, but also just the fact that people always forget and they're. You know, they're privileged workers, absolutely, but they're workers. These are people who are 100%. punching a clock, having a job. And at the very beginning of the series, it's just, and it's just not satisfactorily answered. Just the idea 
that maybe even not just the general manager himself, Jerry Cruz, but even maybe even the owner, Reinsdorf, is just not into being outshined by his own team. No. And I just am thinking about that, like the there's the economics of where all this stuff is going, which we got to put it in, but even just on that ultra petty level, that's why. Yeah, it's it's so interesting for me, for somebody who like basically I'm immersed in the NBA culture 24 7 365 right and i and right now so lebron kicks off in 2010 what i would call the the like the modern version of the nba where we cover this shit 365 we know who these guys are dating on instagram we like it happened once he did the decision to go to miami right like that's like basically the big bang of the modern (laughs) nba Right. Um, and, you know, people have dubbed that the player empowerment movement where literally LeBron, D-Wade and Chris Bosh decide in the room together, not the billionaires, not the commissioner, and decide to make this paradigm shifting decision like on their own unilaterally, no permission, no fucks given. Um, this is the player empowerment movement. Um, these are the players basically taking, understanding what their influence is and wielding it unabashedly. And at the time, I remember it. Well, first it was panned, and then sports reporters responded up to look, look closely at the people who were panning it and saying, "Hold on, maybe this yeah. is actually cool, yeah. right?" <laughs> and, and, yeah. And it got praised, and it got praised, and then we've come around now, ten years later to an idea of like, maybe the fans don't like this shit. Maybe like it is true that the players in the NBA are way more powerful than their counterparts in the MLB or the NFL or even like, you know, big time soccer out in Europe. But maybe we shouldn't highlight it because, you know, the optics of the NBA being what it is, like maybe we don't like the idea that players are running the show. And then I watched this doc. And Jerry Krause and Jerry oh, Ron We want the players running the show. <laughs> yeah, and like I think it's fascinating. I think it's fascinating that that Steve Kerr, who played for Phil Jackson, who like we talked about, like is like this yeah. oh, kind of very evolved so human much. being, players coach oh, and stuff. And Steve Kerr, who now is the coach of the Warriors, do you remember what was when he let the Warriors players coach themselves for a half? Yeah, in a yeah, game, yeah. and course. they call their own plays and that's stuff, and he just Jackson kind of sat thing. back. That's a, Phil that's a total thing. Phil Jackson thing, but the backlash from right. the fans to that was insane. It was like, well, the coaches, the coaches make the decision. Well, they won the game, first of all. The thing, like, crazy thing, Nando, it came from the other team's fans. They felt right. they were showing them up. Right. It was a sign of disrespect that and you would like, let Steph Curry make decisions on a basketball court on his own. Like, was that really that disrespectful? Like, exactly. Like, <laughs> like, yeah. The asshole that Steph Curry was but calling. But no, seriously, plays. Mike, though, yeah. like, the, it's that beautiful was a huge what thing. you brought up. It's beautiful yeah, yeah. what you brought up because I'm like, Michael Jordan, universally accepted and respected as a basketball deity, Jerry Krause is overruling him. Yeah. <laughs> like, overruling. What? And Phil, I mean, and even, and even if you want to go to, like, the mediating role, like, even Phil Jackson. Yep. Like, like, I, let's be practical, okay? Like, people have got their, you know, whether it's the racial dynamics, whether it's just the like, uh, you know, whatever way you, you know, you resent the players, you want to see them still be coached or whatever. Like, Phil Jackson got showed up too, and I, I don't know. That's just that's just wild. That even and the way Reinsdorf at the end is kind of like, whoa, whoa, what do you say? Huh? You want to you want to do it again? It's just like it's it's. 
it, it's also a good reminder to me uh, because as much as I try to look at the economics of things or whatever, there there is just a part of this that's just like, okay, you, any rational person would break the bank to sign a one-year re-up on all of these people. You're going to beyond make your money back. The people of the city are going to love you. Like, and, and then if it does this fan the year after that, you're not going to be hated. Like it could have so, doubled ticket prices. It just, it just <laughs> makes yeah. every type of sense, but no. Yeah. I don't like that Phil and Mike get the attention. I mean, that's really what it, and again, and, and you pointed out early was, and it makes, cause by the end I felt kind of bad for Cruz. Cause like, Charlemagne, I heard Charlemagne actually say like that Jerry Cruz is just meeting his insecurity every day. Like it just so happens that this man who is like unusually short, not athletic and all of this, that his talent is for scoping talent in a game that he can have no physical presence in. That's a very hard ego dynamic that that would take like he should have been sitting and meditating with Phil Jackson. Yeah, but like the, the, by the, the end of it, though, you're like, and Waz, you said this in the beginning. You were just like, yeah, like that's the owner using Cruz to shield himself. One hundred percent. That's and 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 that's what you get to do when you're a freaking billionaire, right? Like you right. literally get to hire a human meat shield. Like yeah. I don't have to take any of the hits. I can just literally tell this guy to say something, and he will say it in public. He will get all the backlash, even though. I'm the final decision. I own this team, right? And that's that's Jerry Krause's role. And again, of course, Jerry Krause has an ego, and he's like, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm the one that makes this thing tick. Like, even after, I think it's after the 1997 championship or the 96 one, where Jerry's in the locker room, Jerry Krause, that is, yeah, he's getting yeah, champagne yeah. poured on him, all of this stuff. Oh, and he talks about the Chicago Bulls, just a great organization. From the front office, down to the to the owner's box, just a great organization. Then he goes, and the players are cool too, but such a great organization. And That's a rough like, one. That is a rough are you, one. Are you crazy? That is a rough bro? one. That's like, a rough one. What are you one. even talking about? <laughs> what are you one. even talking about, bro? Like, not even George Steinbrenner would say something like that at the peak of his power. He would never say, "Oh man, uh, you know, go uh, to talk about Mo Rivera, Derek Jeter." Andy Pettit, secondarily to himself and the money he spent. He's like, no, like, I spent my money wisely, but these cats are great. You know, like, like Jerry J- Jerry Krause is just clueless and, in that sense. And the best – or like, okay, like, say, like, I, I've, you know, I'm a Heat fan, and the Heat is a good organization. Like, they've been they've – been, they've been very good for a long time. Um, and, uh, you know, Pat Riley understands that they're only as good as, like, how good their players are. Like, you know what I mean? Like Pat Riley has had off, like he, he won 15 games one year, you know, when, when, when he had awful players, like the organization means nothing if you don't get off, if you don't get the best players. And he always understands that and always goes after the best players that are available. That's, that's the, that's the bottom line. You don't win in the front office, you know, like it's this, you just gotta, you need the players on the court. Like I remember, you know, when, when in the NFL, like people were, there was like this kind of coach's revolution in a sense that like after the West coast offense and the Niners and stuff and George Seifert won the Super Bowl with the Niners. And then he went to Carolina to, to start their franchise and he went one in 15. 
You know what I mean? Because he didn't have Joe Montana and he didn't, he didn't have, have a good, he, yeah. he had a bad, he didn't have a good organization. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Guys, <laughs> guys can we, uh, I want to talk about Venezuela in a minute. No, this is great. But can we just uh, do something that's really petty for a minute? Yeah, for sure. All right. This is so traditionally, if you want to be somebody's vice president, <laughs> you want the nod. You have to pretend that you're not thirsting over it. Yeah. And if we look at all the other people that are in play, Kamala Harris, she's getting her name on some, you know, progressive-ish legislation. She's she's getting back to, to performing in the Senate, which actually has a perform. I, I thought she'd be a more effective candidate based off of her presentation in the Senate, which is very effective presentationally. Obviously, we've got the governor of uh, Michigan. On one hand, she's got motherfucking <laughs> militia freaks right, yeah. in her life and everything else. But on the other hand, she's definitely having a media <laughs> moment. Um, <laughs> Elizabeth Warren is actually a little thirsty. Elizabeth Warren with it. You know, here's the thing. Uh, but Elizabeth Warren can't be but that because she's not a good politician. But nobody. Stacey Abrams has thirsted more for this than anybody else has thirsted for a job as a vice president. And yeah. also just like Stacey Abrams, nah. Like, well, like she's given us permission to stop, like, you know. She ran for governor of Georgia. It was great that she focused on voter disenfranchisement. Uh and that's really good. And that's about it since she left. Yeah. She also and, likes Ayn Rand. Right. And if you ask like the average white liberal who's like, oh, Stacey Abrams is great. You know, like, she's, she's great. you know, like, <laughs> you, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. I know a lot of people that you're talking about. <laughs> well, like, if you ask them to tell you why they think she's great, like specifically, like they would not be able to tell you that. They, they like, would well, tell you. Oh, she does like all, all her work in, uh, yeah, the, in uh, the wherever she's from. She does. Yeah, like, oh, the work that she does is great. I love it. It's great. Well, what about uh, some pretty key programs in Georgia? No, no, I don't. Well, maybe. But the point is, is just, I mean, yeah, she, she, yes. I mean, it's just a complete substitution of brand identity for a yes. policy set. Anyways, this is funny because this is a collision between ambition mm-hmm. and a senile old man. In real time. In this with a question to Joe Biden, because uh, Stacey Abrams is here because Joe Biden invited Stacey Abrams to be here. Uh, and so, uh, Mr. Vice President, uh, do you have an announcement to make? Uh, is this an audition? Is there uh, what is the reason that, that you decided it's time for me to get on TV with Stacey Abrams? Well, because Stacey Abrams has done more to deal with uh, the fair vote and making sure there is a fair vote than anybody. And she has a great, great capacity to explain things and to lay out exactly why it's going to be so critically important in this election. This president's already said when they put in the stimulus package the Congress first passed 
money to provide for mail-in ballots. He already said, I'm not for that. If we do that, we'll ne- no Republican will ever win or something to that effect. He's made it clear. This is a guy who said he wants to defund the post office from being able to deliver ballots. I mean, so Stacy knows what she's doing, and, uh, and she's an incredibly capable person. You know what I love about that? Honestly, is that that actually I made that senile old man crack, which I should whatever it's become. I'm not going to do those jokes anymore. They're too cliche at this point. But uh, by Biden 2020 standards, not only is he skipping her, he gave a very cogent answer with he some did. very correct. He, he absolutely is right about the post office. He's on point in the criticisms. And just I got to say, on one level, I I feel a little bad because any just on a human level, that level of disappointment you don't like to see in anybody. Um, but that was not a VP. Like, I want my VP to be able to, you know, the stiff upper lip there, not the like, I'm smiling at something I think might happen. And then while... He makes the case against the president. I'm looking like I just got like horrible family news. <laughs> and yeah, Lawrence O'Donnell thought he was going to get the big scoup. You know, like Lawrence O'Donnell. He was actually super thirsty. He was the thirstiest one of all. Like, oh, are you going to, you know, it's like, it's right, like when, you, when you bring your girl. I might get family. renewed for a season. Right. It's like boring you bring your girl show. to a family function and your family members are like, so are you going to pop the question? It's like, yeah. yo, chill. Like, what's wrong <laughs> with you? I just came here to have some turkey. Relax. I thought you were about to say it's like at a family function and you're waiting for them to say how wonderful she is and it's Biden and, and he's just like, you know, Waz, if you're happy, she sure does do a good job. <laughs> I guess. I'll say this about Stacey Abrams, man. Like, I think what people don't understand oftentimes is that if you want to get by, if you want to get on, you do have to be ambitious. You do have to play the game. But those who are the best at it have some level of finesse. Like, you have some facility with, like, being at least marginally slick about what your goals and your aims are without just coming off as being extremely desperate. Like, let's face it, like... Obviously, she's already sold out. She's already sold the soul to the Democratic Party establishment and who she wants to be down with, who she wants to align herself with, because she views them as the people with the steam, with the winning energy behind them. Cool. She made a um, political um, calculation, and that's what she's now doing. She's just not good at it. She's just straight up not good at it. She also has the Pete Buttigieg problem in that she can't win statewide office in Georgia, you know, so her only path to any sort of political power is through the presidency. And she, since she, since she hasn't won anything, she can't win the presidency. So she's just trying to latch on to the, to the rotting Biden corpse. And, you know, like, and that would, that would immediately launch her to national prominence. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's the same you know what thing. What I find funny though is I remember in the beginning of this whole cycle, there was a story being reported that Joe Biden was considering naming Stacey Abrams as his vice president. And people rightly pointed out that unless that conversation had been had, that that was extremely presumptuous and egotistical of the Biden campaign to speak on behalf of another prominent national figure, in this case, Stacey Abrams. 
And I remember Stacey Abrams went out on, and, and that was true. And then other people, like, and then people ran it too far. Like, I remember people starting to write columns, like, Stacey Abrams hasn't decided herself whether she wants to, <laughs> wants to run for president. I was like, all right, let's, okay. Him presuming to speak on her behalf as VP is sexist, arrogant, and ridiculous, and saying that she's a viable presidential campaign uh, is delusional and nonsense. Like, let's please get, let, let's, let's chart a third way between both of these extremes here. But she went on the view and she was just, and she basically, you know, she, she got, she popped some lines off Adam. And then it's just like, and you know, it's like, you can't even just create some durability out of that. Like it, it's like, okay. And sure enough, like it would have been better if she just agreed and said, and Biden would have wrapped things up much more quickly if he ran at, with her as VP in the primary, right? So, I, but the other thing that I just want to say real quick, we'll get off of this in a second. But why on earth, whether it's Mehdi Hassan writing these embarrassing columns calling Elizabeth Warren to be VP, I, I'm talking purely politically here, purely politically. I definitely think it's very important to beat Donald Trump, hundred percent. So I want an, and it's already, we're not having Bernie, so we're not doing anything good. So that's just the, so we're purely in a horse race conversation. Why do people who are the most freaked out, all they do is tweet all day and you're not going to support the Democrat and da 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 feel so comfortable promoting, like you have obvious talent here. You have Gretchen Whitmore, you have Kamala Harris, you have uh, Tammy Baldwin, I would say in some respects. Yeah. You have a Deb Holland who would be out of the box, Native American congresswoman from New Mexico who's got real talent. Uh, you've got a couple of other people like this. Elizabeth Warren, who's unpopular in Massachusetts, who has a constituency with the national media, and Stacey Abrams, who has not performed well at all in the vetting process and doesn't have a national constituency, really, because she doesn't hold national office. Like, Why are people who are the most freaked out about this being the most unserious about this pick? Well, I mean, I think in the in the media, <laughs> yeah. well, I, mean. I think I think in the media, there's, you know, there's this still this idea of Warren as a progressive candidate, and we've done that on Woke Bros a thousand times, whatever. Warren's not a real. I'm talking about her electorally, though. No, yeah. but, but that's what I'm saying. Whether she is or if she isn't, she got blown out the water. Um. Uh, electorally in that in amongst those that group of people who the three of us on this call would consider ourselves to be amongst so she got so she so she got blown out of the water of every group of people that's, that's, what, thing. that's what i'm trying to say <laughs> like like this like, what are we talking that, about like if we're being strategic this idea that she's gonna you know this idea that she's gonna hippify the ticket like she's gonna make the ticket just just a, a flaming liberal ticket is ridiculous in the sense that nobody believes that about her. Yeah. Like the people who actually care about those politics don't believe that about her. So what's the point? And like, what's the point? Like she doesn't have the, those stripes, so it makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, yeah, the 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 in theory argument for Warren is that she would stop the bleeding with potential Bernie voters who feel burned and won't and won't won't show up to vote or whatever. But that's insane because Bernie voters hate Elizabeth Warren more than anyone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was the whole thing that happened in the in the primary. Um, and the thing about vice president is that the vice president pick traditionally 
has more down, like, you know, you, you basically just have a bunch of downsides, you know, like there's no, um, they never cause like an electoral groundswell. They might sometimes help in their home state, which I think is a fair calculus to do this time around. Palin caused a different type of swell. Well, yeah, but Palin, Palin, well, Palin, I would argue that Palin may have fixation on right wing women in continue. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right wing white women. But I think Palin is a, Palin's a good example of someone who probably brought a lot of liabilities to a McCain campaign overall. 100%. You know, and, but, but other than that, vice president, people don't vote for vice president. People vote for president. And there is this like kind of narrow, consideration of whether they can deliver their home state which doesn't even is not even guaranteed like al gore didn't deliver his own his his uh didn't win his home and state. then warren um, is from massachusetts what the hell is she doing exactly so warren's yeah. from massachusetts so that doesn't matter plus there's a republican government governor and we'll replace like her with a senate i mean I, i've heard some arguments that there's probably a way to get around that shit but not whatever not even entertain it. it's not yeah it's, it's not like even worth it but like someone like seconds of breath yeah, but getting so, so it seems to me that the obvious thing is to get someone from the Midwest. Like, just do that. Get someone from Michigan. Get someone from or that's the most obvious kind of like one on one. Maybe from the Sun Belt. I agree. That's like I the ascendant you know, yes, Democratic I, look, Party. I Deb Holland. Deb Holland to me, because actually she like, and and to me, I also like that she is progressive ish, but in a way that people don't have big delusions about. Like, she's just a solid. Yeah. You know, connected liberalish Democrat. She'd make history as a Native American woman. Like, I don't know. People, well, people so would just Tammy getting, Baldwin. I mean, Tammy Baldwin has Tammy Baldwin's decent, an obvious pick. Yeah. Progressive and credentials actually, and would have been, yeah. would have been a good VP for Bernie pick. Uh, she was my, actually, these yeah. are two of my, I think Holland or Baldwin would have been good for Bernie too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And like Tammy Baldwin, like if Biden like croaks, you know, a month into his administration, like Tammy Baldwin is like, you know, that's a big part that's of someone we can work with. I feel that's, like that's the thing oh, about certain people on the left's fantasies about, well, Joe is really old and he's a caretaker candidate. And, well, and he looks, so he's got like eight beat, months to live. Well, I, which are all fair characterizations, but like, I don't like, you don't get to be cute that way. Like, you have to be strategic. Like, this dude doesn't have it in the bag. Like, if there's a way to create any sort of advantage by your Veep pick, that's the shit that you go with. Like, I don't want to hear... That's what's that's what's driving me crazy is the people who are the most... Like, I think you guys and I... I think we are, like, in a third position where it's like, look, we're not bullshitting, we're not lying about how disgusting the situation is, but at the same time, we're also not being delusional. Like, yeah, vote tactically. Definitely get Trump out of office. That's obvious. It's necessary. It's smart. And so therefore, try to be a little fucking clinical. And the people who are on every single day blaming Bernie people, freaking uh, like one brother's like, the Bernie Sanders, it's been, the podcasts are going to cost this. And then Donald Trump's going to become Hitler. And then in the next <laughs> sentence, they're like, let's pick a vice president. Who sucks at politics, <laughs> who brings nothing electoral. Like, it just drives me fucking crazy. It's like, it's like people being like, you're not serious about the Bulls winning. Yeah. Harry Cruz is more important than Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan. Yeah, All right. It's, I really I would think love. If these people were smarter. Um, if they were like, I would have more respect if people who consider themselves to be lefties and cared about winning were, cause, 
Honestly, I hear better um, conjecture from normies. Like, my girlfriend, like, she just watched the Michelle Obama doc and was like, you think they would pick Michelle? I'm like, I think that would actually work practically, you know, as far as, like, getting people, getting the right people excited honestly, about this shit. Honestly, that shit I don't work. remains <laughs> to be seen, but 100% more than the things, I mean, 100%, 100% I mean, Michelle Obama versus Elizabeth Warren, let's There's be no, real. Oh, come on, no, I like, no of question. course, of course it's a better pick. I mean, that's, that's just a question just of whether saying, or not like, at least she wants, no, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and then people who do this for a living are just like, you know what's going to really like people up to vote during no, a pandemic is Elizabeth Warren's it's like not. fucking, you know, like no. rider she put on a bill that didn't pass to make it easier to leverage credit card payments with a library card. I would love to watch uh Biden do the same thing to Warren. Like Lawrence on there like, you got an announcement? And 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 Warren just been like, yeah, Jay Golly, here's the thing. And then Biden just like no, I could just see like you're the one who knows about credit cards. No, Biden, great. it's no, it's the opposite. <laughs> Biden, like some some uh, some Biden advisor is going to make make the case for Warren, you know, and he'll be like that mouthy broad. <laughs> like she wouldn't shut up. <laughs> she wouldn't got, shut up when I was trying to pass the bankruptcy bill. <laughs> yeah, fucking, <laughs> she's got a mouth on her. She shut up. <laughs> she's got a mouth on her. Back to the back when I was trying to help out MBNA. Yeah, uh, Nando, uh, your friends in Miami. Yeah, I say that apropos of nothing. I just wanted <laughs> to ask you about just to ask you about uh, latest news on the uh, Venezuela situation. We got to talk about that for a couple of minutes. This, uh, this is incredible. This it's, coup. It's, it's incredible. Coup. It's incredible. I mean, the latest thing is that like it looks like it looks like Juan Guaido, the um, Venezuelan opposition leader, U.S. backed, you know, kind of incredible grifter, just absolutely delusional guy. Um, it looks like his U.S. backers are thinking about <laughs> making a change because like this guy is too dumb to to be our guy you know like it's just too they're much recognizing like, that the front office isn't going to do a coup you need a solid player yeah like <laughs> exactly you know yeah but they're they're not going to go anywhere you know with with this guy so you know, silver like, core is this mercenary firm yeah it's not even like this is a major global problem you got these firms operating all across the world particularly in africa they're in, they're instruments of u.s aggression abroad and Venezuela has been a target of U.S. foreign policy since at least 2002 and hyper aggressive under Trump. Massive sanctions, um, trying to use uh, the courts to essentially declare like a bounty on Nicolas Maduro's head. I mean, this is so ruthless, aggressive, pure criminal U.S. empire. And at the same time, by all appearances and Pompeo is, you know, he's not even really denying a U.S. role, frankly. No. I mean, he's saying stuff like, well, we'll talk about how maybe another time we'll talk about who funded this or whatever. You had this firm, Silvercore, that has been trying to get contracts to guard schools from school shootings in the past that um, somehow got, I think it was through a connection with Richard Branson to help do security for one of these the concert on the border. Yeah. yeah, these pro-coup concerts at the border. And now these fucking idiots went into Venezuela 
on fishing boats. <laughs> yeah. And I gotta say, like, I, I don't, I won't play this because I don't care. Like, I just don't, I, I just don't take pleasure in any, like, you know, of course, this is criminal. This is like contract murder. Obviously, the Venezuelans need to arrest them, protect themselves, whatever. We'll see what happens. But I don't wish ill on anybody. But there's this clip of one of these Silver Corps guys who got arrested. And through the translator, the Venezuelan is asking him in heavily accented English, like, what's the operation? And the guy is telling him, like, he's not denying it. He's like, yeah, basically, like, come in here, get on the boats, get out. I don't know. Again, it's just fucking insane as they're saying this. Like, take over Caracas. Bag Maduro, other high value targets, take them to the airport. Like, it's insane. It's like a Michael Bay movie, which I know we'll get to in a second. And then the guys, like the Venezuelan, uh, is like, Did you know that this is illegal? And the guy's <laughs> just like, Now I am aware that it is illegal. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Like, did you know that violating our sovereignty and coming in here to fucking kill our leadership to install? Some dope that just says he's the president and is recognized by all the world's imperial interests that want our oil and to get rid of our social achievements and that to just come here and try to like, yeah, like, and this dude's just like, yeah, no, now I get it. Guys, we talked about this on Woke Bros. Um, I think it was a, a week ago or two weeks ago. I can't remember now, but like, we're talking about the ramping up of making China the new boogeyman, right? right? And that's getting ramped up. Like, we're not at, you know, Bay of Pigs or even um, Iran-Contra-level Cold War stuff with Russia yet with China, but we're ramping up there. What I just see here in Venezuela is that the CIA's heart's just not into this one, right? Like, <laughs> you got you to gotta figure <laughs> these guys were willing to sell weapons to the mullahs in the Middle East, right, to right. get money to fund the Contras. They were willing to run crack <laughs> to get money to the conscious. Like that was an operation. Like these guys had their hearts in it. Like they were like, no, like this is life or death for us. Obviously what's going on in Venezuela. It's like, I don't even know, man. It's like how some people might treat like a, a hoop game with their little nephew or something. It's like, all right, <laughs> man, you're, I get it. You just figured out how to make a free throw. You're six years old, but I'm not really paying attention to this like they're just not into it for yeah. real man i mean what one of the reasons why they're not into it is because venezuela is like incredible much more powerful than a lot of these other countries like, they don't realize how people don't realize like just like, the venezuelan military is like very large and the country is very well armed and it's just not it's not like something that it's not like some flimsy regime that you can just topple um in two seconds like they are incredibly oh, if we invaded venezuela that could be like the biggest catastrophe that would happen oh it would millions of people would die but also um, people need to think about the other thing too that like you know that's like what is the lesson of that like i think we all would prefer like we all would prefer the lula approach but then, right. but then he got, what then he, got, then he, got out. he got out, he got thrown and in then, jail. And then, so in the Venezuelan, the people, oh, like this Venezuelan government, you know, strikes deals with the military. Yeah. Right. Because that's how they keep from getting deposed. Right. That's why Iran wants a nuclear weapon. That's why you think you think right. someone's gonna fucking off their, their, the head of their military command, like Suleimani, like we did earlier this year, if they had a nuclear weapon, no way. Well, what's there. the whole world's big lesson, right? Across the board from North Korea to Libya to Iran. But I don't know. It's just, that's just, it's ridiculous. And also we got to talk more about this JJ Rondon guy. Yeah. Who's this 
Miami-based political consultant who's worked for right-wing campaigns across Latin America has been accused of all sorts of shit. We'll talk about this. The, the crazy movie. thing about this Rendon guy. He's the conduit for the deal, right? Talk yeah. about it. Well, the, the, but yes, he's, the, so he's like, he's admitted to it, right? He's yeah, literally that's, said it. I think that's what's most surprising about all this is that he's just like openly talking about it. Like he doesn't care, you know, like he's not even like hiding the fact that, that he brokered this insane deal. You know, he's, talking to the media nonstop like he he answers the phone when people call and he then he talks like it's it just speaks to the brazenness of this all like they think that this is normal behavior that they're just like doing something that's that's worthy and good it's just that's how their mentality is like they don't care but yeah this guy's like an unbelievably shadowy uh, and dangerous figure who just kind of sits atop his perch in, in a Miami condo and just uh, takes money from Venezuelan uh, oligarchs who are living in uh, Aventura and uh, Sunny Isles yeah. and uses it to hire psychopaths like this Justin Goudreau guy in Silvercore to maybe depose uh, Nicolas Maduro. Like, it's it's totally insane and brazen the way they're doing it. How are your Venezuelan homies in Miami taking all of this? <laughs> they, they all, they all love, I mean, they all like, they, they, everyone in Miami wants Maduro out, like at all costs. Like they don't, they don't, that's like, that's like, they don't think beyond that. You know, like whether it, like, even if like Trump like sends in troops, like they'll be like, yes, that's a good idea. We should do it. I mean, like, I don't like Trump, but you know, we should do that. And what I worry about, like this insane kind of hilarious coup attempt is that is that the U.S., like, because there's Americans involved, that the U.S. might do, like, the Grenada thing and be like, well, we got to get our boys back. You know, yeah. we can't, we can't, we got to get our boys. You know, we can't leave our boys behind. That's really scary. And it's, you and know? it's disgusting. Look, Grenada, Panama, those are two of the big U.S. crime. I mean, just gangsterism, particularly yeah. Grenada. Yeah. But <laughs> what's in, I mean, particularly Grenada, that's just pure. That is, like, I, I don't even know what the analogy is for that just rampant criminality, but, but people need to wrap their heads around that Venezuela is not, I mean, everybody I think basically knows not Grenada, but it's not Panama. No, it's not Not even Nicaragua. It's not Nicaragua. It's not, I mean, this would be such a catastrophe. And I think you're right. Like that, that is the scary part of this. And it's the only part of it, honestly, that even, makes any kind of sense if you wanted to give some of these agencies any kind of credit that this is so stupid and so ridiculous that it makes the Venezuelan government look good and coherent, right? And that the only play here is some type of you got our people. I don't know. Like a Casas belly to to get them out. Yeah. You know, it's just it's crazy. It's it's a very you know, it's depressing. It, it, um, no one cares, you know, like we think it like, like the, the, you look at, look at Iran Contra, right. And, um, which you mentioned and you look back at that time and the democratic party as like weak and feckless as, as they always have been, they were like calling congressional hearings to Dude, investigate the Reagan John administration. Kerry exposed global yeah, yeah, yeah. CIA, BCCI, like, how cocaine is, trafficking yeah. networks, man. How is, John like, Kerry did that. That is literally unimaginable for like Nancy Pelosi to like open an inquiry no, into this insane thing and see no, like... No, Chuck Schumer would links. be like that 2% 
of each cocaine sale that funds the death squads will go towards a to get highway <laughs> refurbishment yeah. in Long Island and Nassau <laughs> County. And that furthermore, if Donald Trump wants to profit from cocaine sales to the Venezuelans. He bar his family from profiting three directly. Three years <laughs> after he's president and his immediate family, six months. Yeah. Mike, it's, have it's you crazy. ever watched the um, Talented Mrs. Maisel? No, tell me. Every single character on that show talks like exactly that. like your Chuck Schumer impersonation, <laughs> and it's fucking fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I'm thinking about the talented Mr. Mr. Ripley. Ripley. Yes, but it's Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, though. Sorry. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Thank you for the assist. That's the Gwyneth Paltrow, the Nubian queen. (laughs) My milk of magnesia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Gwyneth Paltrow, every time she comes up on anything that I do, I have to bring up my favorite Gwyneth Paltrow moment, which was during the Watch the Throne tour, um, her and Chris Martin back when they were together with are famously very close friends with Jay-Z and Beyonce, right? And they happened to be in Paris when the Watch the Throne tour stopped in Paris. And this is around the time that Jay and Kanye were doing this performance art thing where they would perform the freaking song niggas in Paris, like a ridiculous amount of times, like whatever. It was their biggest song at the time. It, it's completely kind of mediocre in retrospect, but whatever. Can I say, time, do you guys remember how, uh, Francois Hollande, when he was running for president, I think in 2012, his campaign, and it was an official video. I think it's been scrubbed. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's like good, just B roll politician footage, but it uh-huh. was definitely like, all right, this is like we're going to mobilize the Paris suburbs with the North oh, African nice. France and young people. It's just Hollande campaigning with that song, unedited. Again, and this is similar to that, so Michael. Yes. Like, and so she tweets from the stage, and I quote, Cause the song is called Niggas in Paris. She tweets, Niggas in Paris for real. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my god. Like oh. naively, unironically. That song, that's like the best troll of white people. Like, like it's like, and burning up the charts is uh words <laughs> in Paris. <laughs> Bruh. Like, the number one song in America. I remember reading that tweet and just losing my mind, just laughing hysterically, like this white woman can't be serious. Like, and she did it, like, no, but for real. But for real. <laughs> Get it? It's niggas in Paris. Like, dude, it's niggas in Paris. Like, oh, it was just too good. That's the only thing I think about when I think of Gwyneth Paltrow. That story is a controversial style of play for the big leagues. I love it. That's hilarious. Jesus. And then she was like, all right, I'm going to found Goop now. Um, Guys, let's do this again in June, yeah? Yeah. Yes, sir. All right. Yeah. I love it. I love it. The Rope Bros Assemble. We're definitely going to do this again in another. Obviously, you can catch us every single week on the bomb feed 
uh, B-O-M-M, Black Opinions Matter, on the Count the Dings Network on iTunes. Uh, that's the way you can catch us and not miss a single week. But and make sure you we'll, guys subscribe to that. Definitely. We have a lot of fun, as you can see. But we're going to do this again, the crossover, in another three or four weeks or so, because this is a lot of fun. We need to do more yeah. of this. Um, obviously, you can check out Waz at Count the Dings and The Athletic. You can check out Nonzo also at The Athletic. But he writes about soccer. You can check out Nando. You see him on TYT where he does political commentary, the indispensable uh, political commentary. And also, um, Waz and I have both been a guest on a very good podcast called Potted Out, which is Nando's entourage viewing podcast, which you is know, sort just, of like uh, the Gwyneth Paltrow story. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know. um, listen, man, it's hard times in the quarantine. You know, just everyone should just kick back fire up Entourage, listen to the intro theme song, and just dive into a simpler time. Absolutely. All right, guys. I love you guys. Thanks All so right, much. Man, I love you too, man. Later, Take guys. Take it easy. All right. Be Later. safe. Talk to you guys soon. You guys there? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Here's what we're going to do. Let's uh, actually uh, – Let's. I'm going to do an illicit – mini history of permanent normalized trade relations with China in the post game, guys, you're going to have to become a patron to catch it as well as the reading group with Daniel Bessner and some other stories we got to get to and Joshua Khan, Russell. Uh, but now I hope you're digesting that. I hope that was a lot of fun for everybody. We're definitely going to do that again in another couple of weeks. And uh, you guys, we should try, I know it looks visually awkward, but, you guys should try to jump in on that. Well, I wanted to, free I wanted to jump in with that when everyone was praising Tom Brady for a second. Because have you seen what he's done recently? Oh, he's selling like a health supplement for a <laughs> he's corona. He's selling or like a fifty dollar coronavirus cure of multiple. Well, you know me. I you know that I'll defend something like that. <laughs> you good? <laughs> I love it. No, I Take love Tom sink, Brady. Baby. I love Tom Brady's <laughs> stuff. They used to, like, Bill Belichick used to have to kick his team doctor out of the locker rooms at the Patriots facility. Because <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched, like, um, on cinema, at the cinema, but they're, like, a nat- like Dr. Sam. Uh, he has, like, this crazy naturopath doctor. Anyways, Tom Brady had some guy who was, like, giving people all these supplements and stuff, and Bill Belichick was like, you know, this guy's not a team doctor, and he can't just get <laughs> That's awesome. You know, after the game. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> Oh, man, I don't know why that cracks me up so much. All right, David, you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, it's gem time, everybody. David Griscom, go. Well, you know, on the other side of of that, I mean, like, is there any feeling right now that this coronavirus crisis is over anywhere in the United States? No, no, sir. Well, why is it in this crisis? Now, one of the, mo- the, the la- one of the largest grocery store chains in the country, uh, Kroger, has now announced that they're going to be cutting um, their what they called hero pay, which is an extra $2 an hour for workers who are at the front lines of, of this coronavirus scandal. So not only is Kroger, um, you know, a corporation that has been doing exceptionally well before the crisis and even more so after the crisis, uh, because primarily that's where the majority of Americans are spending their money right now. Um, those are the, for, for the most part, they're the, one of the few viable businesses in the coronavirus pandemic. And on whose labor is that built on? These people who they're cutting their $2 an hour pay. Now, not only is that happening, but this last week, um, you know, there was this big story and, you know, shout out to Sarah Jaffe at a descent uh, for covering this. Where Kroger was actually 
sending very threatening letters uh, to workers who had taken sick pay, um, who might have been ill with coronavirus or whatever, saying that they had accepted you know, this extra pay, and then they were now going to be expected to pay it back. And they had options of, you know, different payment plans they could go into with this massive corporation. Um, you know, and anyways, very frightening and threatening letters that they're sending out to people. Now, as of today, um, like just as we, we went on, Kroger has now announced that those were sent in error. Um, but obviously, um, you know, <laughs> it's not like right. somebody pressed the button. Yeah. Yeah. It was like and somebody wrote a whole thing, created a different plan with different payback options. Yeah, there's just just this giant yeah. error. We pushed the act <laughs> like a corporation button by accident. <laughs> <laughs> you know, obviously, it's because everyone has been, you know, rightfully very frustrated and, and on social media and across the, the country, people have been pushing back against them. Now, I want to add, um, Kroger is not re-instituting um, their two, extra $2 an hour that they have given workers since the beginning of the coronavirus. Instead, they're giving um, something that they're calling a thank you pay, uh, which is a one-time bonus of $400 for um, full-time workers and $200 for part-time workers that will be paid in two installments over the next month. Right. Don't get too generous. Jeez. Yeah, exactly. Yes. I mean, Jesus. as you're cutting people's pay, you're giving them, you know, this kind of, you know, paltry amount compared people to people are risking their lives every day in the middle of a pandemic that has been completely unmanaged, that has been accelerated by the federal government, by the Trump administration, and with no public health uh, safety net, no social provision for people to stay at home, which they need to during this time. Uh, and then people who, so, and the reason I'm adding all of that is because that is the context that makes being an essential worker even more risky. Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, if there was an umbrella of protection around people, that might make people who are innately the most vulnerable because of their job a bit safer, right? Mm-hmm. Anyways. Oh, yeah. I, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Matt. No, oh, I was just going to say, this reminds me of, I was watching McMillions on uh, that Hulu documentary mm-hmm. about how uh, the uh, McDonald's um, the Monopoly, Monopoly game, game was yeah. was thing. And it's, it's a pretty interesting documentary. I mean, there's a little bit too much glorification of the feds, um, which is annoying. Um, but yes. what it makes me think of is like business and the mafia is kind of the, the same thing. Because those winners in, they weren't actually making that much money because you realize you're like, you're, you get a uh, million dollars, but that's over 20 years. And then mm-hmm. you get a huge mon- bunch of that as a taxes. Then you have to give it to the criminal enterprise. But I, and so like I, at the end of it, I'm like, I don't feel bad for the, uh, the people. I feel bad for, I think the whole, like the, it's a scam basically. And like that we can only give people $400 and have to space it out over two, over two months. I don't know. It's, Oh yeah, I mean that's the whole point. Is it's it is like McMillions actually. It's totally. like nothing. Like you get yeah. nothing out of it. And and the fact that like I would just add that um, something when I was researching for this uh, you know segment today was it's really interesting if you type in thank you pay on Kroger, right? You'll get some like real in depth studies like you saw you know in Descent and in other organizations. But there's the very classic kind of like local news story. Right, where they pretty much just copy and paste from the press release. So instead of it being, hey, Kroger's threatening employees and cutting their extra $2 an hour, it's like, wow, Kroger's giving all of their employees an extra bonus, right? Um, and it's really... There's a whole network of PR shops that help make those stories so. And then that 
overlaps with the other problem, which is the total gutting of the news industry in this country and monopolization. But I mean, I, I talked with my buddy, Luke Mayville, who's, you know, that great academic and political organizer in Idaho. And when he was working on Medicaid expansion there, and he's just like, you know, think about under-resourced newspapers across the state and the fact that a Koch brothers operation has paid political operatives across even pretty rural and remote areas, Mm -hmm. just in terms of, bandwidth. I mean, what are you going to do? Of course, Kroger can place all sorts of mm-hmm. uh, positive PR. And then, and then not even to mention, you're going to talk about local news. Well, Sinclair, you know, an extreme far right media monopoly. I, I need to figure out this mute thing. But anyway, there was a 538 article about how like some landlords, like, you know, you know most landlords only own like, 10 properties or less. And it's like 10 properties, guys. That's a lot. That's a lot of properties. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot. I like that. I like that. That's, that's really interesting because it's like people are always looking for, and there are examples, but I love how people are always looking for like, no, this is like a retired, you know, uh, old couple and they own like an extension on their house that they rent. Th- those people do exist and I'm willing to put them in a different category, but that's really great to be just mm-hmm. like, this person owns multiple properties across a metropolitan area, you know, <laughs> like many of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, del- I mean, it's absolutely uh, delusional. Um, I would just, you know, I would just say like, just to, to wrap up or to, to point out to people, you know, going forward, though, it's like, obviously, you know, the 3 million workers uh, who work at these grocery stores are crucial and essential. And yes, they need your appreciation, but we also need to be, you know, supporting them, uh, not only in their fights for pay, but their fights for health protection. Um, as you're seeing lots of states now roll back uh, protections. I know like Kroger, for example, one of the big demands of workers there is in states that don't have a mandatory face mask rule. Like obviously major cities are saying you have to wear face mask, mask in public, but across the country, local cities and states have not put those, you know, implemented those rules. And in those areas, people are just going into the Kroger um, or the grocery store or whatever without any kind of face mask, which, you know, exposes those workers. You know, so those are the second demands uh, too on those corporations to say that like, you know, you need to make the decision and say that we won't accept anyone coming into the store without face coverings. These people, these workers really need our support right now. We need to be vigilant um, and standing with them because yeah, they are essential and they need to be empowered. Um, They need to be appreciated, but they also need to be empowered too. Um, And that's the second level of discourse that like we need to be uh, promoting instead of just this kind of like platform, right? We need to make sure that they're getting paid, that they have healthcare, that they're not being abused by these massive corporations. Um, oversight or, or slack basically yeah semi-related david check the uh, tweet i just put in the uh gem segment uh okay just in one a, second it's kind of a fun <laughs> video based on workers dealing with people who don't wear masks in uh, oh no i can't I, i'll tell you like the, the I, i'm pulling it up right now all right here we go these sort of kill me though to be honest this is funny all right here we go sorry 
I just put you on my 3,000 follower Instagram feed. Mostly local. Hi everyone. I work for Costco and I'm asking this member to put on a mask because that is our company policy. So either wear the mask. And or... I'm not doing it because I woke up in a free country. <laughs> so you're going to take this car for me. Sir, have a great Full day. Full of stuff. You are no longer welcome here in our warehouse. You need to leave. Thank you very here, much. You put it on. I'll give you my card. He's going to take the card away because he's a pussy little bitch. There he is, walking away with all my stuff. There he goes. Yeah, I mean, what a pampered coward, seriously. Oh my god, what a bloated sack of shit. I hate you know, him. Like, oh, I woke up with a free ice cream. Yeah, exactly. And I'm sorry, all of you right wingers, um, you know, who promote the free, like, businesses can do whatever they want. Right? Shut the hell up. <laughs> all of a sudden, all up all right say, now. like, do whatever they want when they're, uh, you know, slashing people's wages or putting them, <laughs> you know, exposing them to dangerous toxins or repetitive stresses. We need to amend the Constitution to say businesses can do whatever they want except be cucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. All right. It's great. All right, folks. We're going to go to the post game. Daniel Bester is going to be with us. We've got a bunch of stories to get to, including many illicit history of permanent normalized trade relations with China and the world we are in today. Incredibly. And of course, all of uh, these efforts are supported by you becoming a patron, including the main show. So go to patreon.com slash TMBS. Red Emma's is restocked with against the web cosmopolitan answer. The new right. Go order it. Folks are really digging the book. They're really digging the book. Use Red Emma's or go to IndieBound. Uh, IndieBound in general too you know if you're buying books and you should be if you can buy books at independent bookstores and definitely not at Amazon Uh, thank you guys thanks to everybody who makes this possible we will see you in the post game